title card reading Los Angeles, California comes up over what is obviously a suburban neighborhood somewhere in Canada on a gray, drizzly autumn day. A seemingly innocent child or mild-mannered, random, again, definitely Canadian actor (laughs) going about their day suddenly experiences a possession, an abduction, an exsanguination, or some combination of all of the above. You know, there's only one duo of experts qualified to figure out what's really going on here. And also, I'm here. Cut to opening credits. This is the When We Were Young podcast, and I am Seth Pearson, the host most likely to pick out something black and sexy and prepare to do some funky poaching. I'm Chris, your podcast host most likely to be found at a share concert with a two-faced Frankenstein monster. (laughs) That is so accurate. That is so perfect. (laughs) And I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host most likely to want to get abducted by David Duchovny. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary space creatures of all origins, whatever corner of the cosmos you may inhabit, we invite you to turn off all the lights, lean in close, and join us as we turn on just one amazingly powerful flashlight to examine The X-Files, the Fox sci-fi thriller horror series created by Chris Carter and starring Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny. Before we learn about the people and ideas behind the X-Files, we've uncovered some new reviews of the show. Yes, indeed, we do have new reviews. The first is titled, So Glad You're Back. It is a five-star review from Plant82. And they are from Canada, so this is an appropriate review for this X-Files episode. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Are they from Vancouver? It does not say, but perhaps they will write in and, and let us know. We can't assume, Becky. The review says, I started listening to your podcast during my commutes to work and at night when my two-year-old wakes up screaming and I'm stuck in his room in the middle of his night to calm him down. Your podcast makes those long nights so much more bearable. Thank you for coming back and keeping me company on those long, long nights. Does anyone on this podcast relate to that? (laughs) I was going to say, Plants 82, I relate to that a lot because when I was dealing with my now almost two-year-old for many long hours where she wanted to talk to me and babble to me, I would just play our podcast. (laughs) She would hear my voice (laughs) and it was a lifesaver. I like how you didn't play other podcasts. It was our podcast. It's so she could hear my voice. We have to indoctrinate her early on to our opinions. <laughs> How else are we going to replicate ourselves and our children? Come on. Also that. I wanted I wanted her to get started early with her movie fandom. Did you play like child-friendly episodes or showgirls? Do we have child-friendly episodes? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've yet to play anything child-friendly for her. That's That's on brand. <laughs> Well, thank you for that nice review. Thank you so much for that review. I think you're better than the 81 other plants. <laughs> <laughs> And we have another new review. It is a one-star review. (gasps) And the title is Terrible Show. What? Wow. This review comes from Ferg Runner of the United States. Mm -mm. Of course, an American. Yeah. The review says, nothing they watch holds up. It's offensive. It's something phobic. Blah, blah. Very predictable show. 
why are you reading this? <laughs> we're supposed to give the impression that we're perfect. We do not need this kind of haterade flowing through our veins. Chris, I banish this person. I don't know what a Ferg is, but I didn't like them anyway. <laughs> I want to know what episode they listened to because I find it hard to believe that we've ever agreed. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering that too when I first read this. And I was like, maybe the Jim Carrey one because we went pretty hard on it being transphobic, Ace Ventura. Yeah, I think there's only been a couple episodes where we're really like kind of shocked and appalled by something, you know? I think we usually are pretty have a pretty diverse opinions. Maybe they're a really big TGIF fan. <laughs> <laughs> they they do exist. <laughs> yeah, so I'd like to take this opportunity to say that this is our only one-star review. In fact, our only less than five-star review with words. A few people have, you know, <laughs> dropped by to give us fewer stars, um, you know, with just the one one click. But this is the only person who has actually taken time to write out that we are terrible. So we would appreciate more five-star reviews to help balance this out and, you know, be honest. And, you know, we will we will take any opportunity to read good or bad criticism, maybe. And <laughs> not absorb it. No. We've learned nothing from his review. Nope. Not a single thing changed about my perspective or attitude. <laughs> And our opening question for this episode, I wanted to know, my When We Were Young co-hosts, what concept or supernatural power from sci-fi of any kind did you most want to believe in when you were growing up? I think uh, probably telekinesis. Like I was always really interested in, in characters who were had the power of their mind was their power. Because I mean, mm. in some ways, I believed that that was true of myself anyway, just because I was a smart kid, but kind of a quiet kid, you know. So I liked that trope of Carrie or whatever, you know, who has like a secret power that everyone would underestimate this person. But, you know, at the wrong moment, you know, crossed with some pig's blood or, you know, whatever it may be, they're capable of, of much more than than they appear. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I liked the idea of being able to kind of both sort of impress people or surprise people, but also maybe not even necessarily have people recognize that it was you. You know, you could kind of do these things with your mind, but you'd be sitting there quietly. Yeah, I think telekinesis was always something that seemed like it would be fun if it existed and also maybe one of the more possible things, you know, just because it's it's a mind thing. And we Chris, all have our minds. I, I love this so much. This is like one of my favorite <laughs> favorite answers of of this question <laughs> it's so interesting so like was carrie your touchstone for telekinesis i don't think i had seen carrie when i was actually like a kid or even a teenager i, mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly i think it was probably college when i first saw it you know there were things like buffy which i'm going to talk about like later in this episode a little bit too um that had telekinetic episodes it wasn't necessarily that, and it wasn't always about revenge, but I, I mean, I would even kind of come up with stories, you know, like when I was writing a story, you know, that had that kind of element in there where a character has the sort of powerful mind. And my other question, like, just off of this is, I found it really interesting that you said that if you had the power, you would find ways of using it where people wouldn't know that it was you and wouldn't know that you were the one wielding it. And that's just really interesting to me because I feel like so many versions of so many people's answers to this question would revolve around powers that they would kind of presumably, understandably be using in ways that would make everyone see them as the hero. Were there any specific uses that you like thought of? I can answer for him. Revenge. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, dishes best served cold, you say. Yeah, I think, yeah, even, I mean, even just like, you know, floating something at someone or spilling their, you know, lunch on them. And I could walk up to someone theoretically and actually like spill their lunch on them. But then, you know, you'd get like beat up or in trouble. So this would be like the way of doing it where it's like, no one could prove it, you know, even if that person knew, and I, it would sound crazy if they were like, you know, Chris used telekinesis on me and spilled that lunch. Everyone would be like, that doesn't make any sense. So having this sort of, I guess, get out of jail free card, but to kind of cause mischief definitely appealed to me and my little teenage dark side. But see, it's righteous mischief. It's righteous mischief. And that's what I appreciate. I love this answer. Oh, yes. Yes. Always deserved. <laughs> Becky. The funny thing with Chris's answer is that for a very long time when I was little, I thought telekinesis was real and that Carrie was just an advanced (laughs) version of it. The documentary Carrie, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I definitely thought that was real when I was little. (laughs) I was going to say maybe like magic, like watching magicians. Sure. But I feel like maybe the thing I wanted to believe in the most was God. (laughs) And um, that that falls under the category of magic. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, I don't know. I I definitely like prayed to God when I was little. And then one day when I was 13 or 14, I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) And then it was all (laughs) and then it was over. (laughs) Was there any particular event at which this process happened when you were 13 or 14? Or was it over like months or years? Uh, It was at Passover dinner. And I was bored and I was like, why are we even here? (laughs) And then you were like, wait, 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 why are we even here? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) It's pretty much ever since that dinner. I was like, wait a minute. And it's just one of those like, you're just like thinking in your head for the first time. You're like, wait a minute. And you're trying to like. Yes, absolutely. Like just come to some hard truths, I guess. If I was at that Passover dinner, I would have like floated a dinner roll and then you would have believed in God again. (laughs) I would have been like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Brew, Katad, and I. <laughs> Becky had this atheist phase until that dinner where a lot of flew at her face. <laughs> it was really different after that. But yeah, I've never like believed in like ghosts or aliens. I mean, maybe when you're very little, you're thinking like, oh, is that true? Could that be true? But like, never seriously. I love both your answers so much. Telekinesis was, of course, at the top of my list of supernatural sci-fi powers that I wanted. Chris, much like you, I certainly had visions of using it for petty vengeance. (laughs) (laughs) But also, you know, I wanted to figure out ways to right the world's wrongs. And I very much had that kind of wannabe superhero complex when I was young. Hmm. For me, the biggest touchstone for this was Professor X, Charles Xavier from the X-Men. He was telekinetic and confined to a wheelchair, and that gave him power beyond just his intellect and body, the power to really physically manipulate and change the world around him with just the power of his big old brain. (laughs) And then the other concept from sci-fi for me that really tied with that on the list was the transporter from Star Trek The Next Generation onward. Oh, yeah. The transporter just giving you the ability to disappear and reappear somewhere else on the other side of the universe really appealed to me and really still (laughs) appeals to me quite a bit in the middle of a worldwide pandemic where none of us can travel anywhere. 
And as a child, I think I really gravitated toward this one in particular because in the context of Star Trek, this was a thing that was kind of invented by human effort and human ingenuity and imagination. And so it really appealed to me in that sense because it was something that was created that we could maybe achieve at some point. And then I also think it appealed to me kind of psychologically because there was a time in my life when like I felt really bullied and also like felt other kind of pressures in my life from family and other kinds of things where I really did want to escape or at least want to have the feeling that I could escape. And so it was funny because I I thought of the opening question and then I never really understood that one in this kind of context, but it was super clear to me now, of course, like the idea of a transporter is the idea that you could escape and go somewhere fanciful and amazing and new. That's interesting. I mean, it really highlights how much of sci-fi is just like wish fulfillment. And I think all the best sci-fi, you know, kind of comes from that place of like, you know, exploring something very human and very psychological. And so it makes sense that, you know, as teenagers and well, whatever you're feeling, you know, you're feeling kind of a lack of power or a need to escape and that that you turn to something really fantastical in order to like kind of fulfill those fantasies for yourself. But yeah, I mean, I think that definitely explains what the appeal of sci-fi is uh, for us as kids. Definitely. And I also think it's kind of at its best what the appeal of storytelling is too, in the sense of like our imaginations kind of coming up with the what if before we even come up with the why. But that's something I think about sci-fi that's always really appealed to me. And I think obviously something about X-Files that really appealed to me too. So what was your personal history with the X-Files? Well, I am obsessed with ranking things and grading things. (laughs) Oh, we know it. And so back in the 90s, as an Entertainment Weekly subscriber, as we've talked about many times, uh, there was an issue that came out with X-Files episodes where they gave them all grades. And I think that came out before I had ever seen the X-Files because when the show started, I think maybe 93, and so I was a little bit young. You know, I was just exiting the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles phase, probably, to call back to our last episode. (laughs) But, you know, I I think I held on to every episode of Entertainment Weekly. So at some point, they started rerunning X-Files on FX. I think that was in 97. And so I had an opportunity to watch the show from the beginning. And, you know, obviously Entertainment Weekly was very crazed about the show. You know, it was a hip show and they were into everything that was hip and very 90s and, and cool. So that was about the point when I was like, okay, like, I think I should, you know, check this out and see. Because I was um, then becoming a teenager and like we were just talking about, like I was starting to be more interested in those kinds of metaphorical things, you know, that are kind of escapist things. Like I was looking kind of for my next fantasy world, I guess, to kind of disappear into. So I think I watched pretty much every episode of The X-Files as they re-ran. I think it was over a summer or something like that. I had no idea. I thought you were going to say you'd never seen the show before. Really? Me neither. I had no idea whatsoever. That's funny. Talk about a big reveal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've known you like 20 years. You've never talked about the I X-Files. I feel like there's been a shadowy cabal dedicated to preventing Becky and I from learning that you watched the X-Files. Yes, it was a hmm. conspiracy because I knew that this podcast <laughs> was coming and I wanted to blow your mind. I knew you were playing the long game. 
I, I kept it hidden for decades. <laughs> you did. Well, but that being said, is that's the weird thing, is that it's almost as if there was an alien conspiracy to then erase all knowledge <laughs> of X-Files from my mind. Because as we were doing this show, like I expected to be watching episodes and being like, oh, okay, I've seen this before. Like I know this episode or I know that. But I didn't really have that experience. Like specific episodes didn't really come back to me if anything, it was like the names of the episodes did because I read about them mm. in Entertainment Weekly. Yeah. But more than the actual plots, I knew, you know, kind of the basics and I wasn't really like blown away by anything. Like I, I know what the X-Files is. I know like the general tone of it and the kind of overall arc of it. But like, I, I'm not sure. I can't like really identify like that I watched, you know, say season four versus season five. I have to kind of guess to piece it together. And I know that I watched the show live at some point because the movie came out. And so I think I was watching the show live leading up to that and in at least a season after that. Mm. But still, like, I kind of read, like, plot synopses of, like, overarching, like, episode, uh, season arcs. And it didn't really t- ring a bell, to be honest. So it's kind of an odd thing that I, like, I owned this movie on <laughs> widescreen VHS in my special Fox boxes that I have uh, talked about previously. And so like, I was very familiar with like the movie and just, and these characters. And yet they didn't make as big of an impression on me as they probably should have for the amount of time I spent watching the show. Interesting. Very interesting. We've learned so many new things here already. I too, I believe first read about X-Files in entertainment weekly. I was not a subscriber to the magazine. <gasps> I know. I was a blatant freeloader. Did you actually subscribe to these? Because the, the fun was <laughs> going to the store and buying the copy. No, I subscribed. Whenever my family would go to the mall or Barnes & Noble or Walden Books or any of the physical bookstores that used to exist. B. Dalton? B. Dalton as well. <laughs> Walden Books was the one I frequented the most. And B. Dalton eventually replaced those. And then everything got swallowed up by Barnes & Noble. And then got swallowed by Amazon. <laughs> exactly. Anytime that my family would go to the mall, I would always head straight to the bookstore and look at the magazine aisle. I'd always love to look at Entertainment Weekly in particular. And that was one of my earliest sources for, like, quote-unquote, hip, cool new things to watch, you know, around 1996, 97, and 98, you know, when I'm in kind of getting to that middle school age. And Entertainment Weekly had those glossy photo spreads every time and those really cheeky, fun photo shoots and covers. So that was definitely an early source for me for figuring out those things that should be on my radar. And they had many really great, fun spreads about the X-Files when it was in its heyday. So that was really one of the first places I ever heard about X-Files. But I only watched one or two episodes of the show itself until I went to summer camp at a college I've mentioned before here. I can't remember if this was the summer that I took courtroom practice and procedure (laughs) or the next summer when I took music theory. But either way, it was the summer of 1998 and we would go into town the town being Natchitoches, Louisiana, which is where Steel Magnolias was filmed. (laughs) There was exactly one movie theater there, and we would go to that one tiny movie theater for movie nights as a field trip during camp. And one of the movies that we went to see was X-Files Fight the Future. 
I went mostly because my best friend Jordan really loved The X-Files, but I'd barely seen any of it. But we saw the movie on opening day or the day after, and that was basically my first toe in the water with X-Files. It so perfectly lined up with all of my existing interest in nerddoms, you know, like sci-fi and aliens and horror fantasy. So basically with that one movie trip, I became an instant huge mega nerd fan of the X-Files. Wait a second. I beat you to the X-Files. <laughs> like, is that what this show is revealing is that I actually watched many, many episodes of the X-Files before you did? Chris? Again, like I said, we have already learned so much in this episode. So much has been revealed, and yet there is still more to uncover. Oh my god. <laughs> it's actually true. I never, never would have believed that. Well, in researching for this, I learned about the the deal with FX. Even though I had cable, I don't know if my cable provider didn't have FX or what, but it just was not on my radar at all from that. So, mostly I ended up seeing X-Files after the movie, just from re-airings on Fox, and kind of started tuning into the new episodes. And then later on, once I was in high school, a friend of my aunt started having X-Files nights at his place. And he would get a projector from the local public college like an 85 or 90 inch screen with that analog <laughs> non-HD resolution TV was really tremendous. But every Sunday we would go over and hang out and we would watch the new airings of X-Files. And that was in, you know, the later seasons, basically like six through eight. But those X-Files nights were kind of a really formative, great experience for me because I got to meet a lot of older nerds and it was a time in my life when I didn't know many people who were like slightly older than me. And I didn't know like that people could have their things that they were nerds about and that that was okay. Mm -hmm. Much like the elementary school experience I described earlier, it was a time in my life when I wanted to escape. With this, it was kind of a way to be a fan of this thing, but enjoy it with other people and enjoy it with people who were friends and also kind of enjoy the new episodes of the show with people who had the same background of information about all of the shows. So they knew all of the things that were going on that were, you know, referencing other episodes and other seasons. So yeah, those X-Files nights were also a really great experience for me. And one of the parts of my kind of history with the X-Files that I hold closest. Well, and I was curious if any of y'all had experiences, you know, either, especially with any kind of shows um, where you would kind of watch them with friends as an appointment like that. Not when I was in high school, because you're just in high school. <laughs> I guess TGIF. <laughs> um, I had the lamest version of that, which was not in person. I had tapes. <laughs> I had so many tapes. <laughs> I would, we had uh, three TVs at my house uh, growing up. I think two of them had VCRs. So I would watch something live and be taping two other shows mm -hmm. at the time. And I had them all, you could stretch out a VHS to six hours or some of them eight hours. And I would time them so that I could fit the exact amount of time that like the tape would take up. You were like the beautiful mind of VCR technology, Chris. <laughs> I was. And so, and then I would label it. I, I had post-it notes and I would write, you know, one, two, three, what's on there, a little summary of each episode. And I would give them to my best friend, Tiffany. 
You sound exhausting. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> In the Teen Heartthrobs episode, we talked about my obsession with JTT when I was 12 and 13. Oh my God, did you cyber with David Duchovny? <laughs> <laughs> if only. When I was 14, it was pretty much Team Duchovny. Oh boy, just switched hard to David Duchovny. <laughs> Team Duchovny, Team Duchovny. <laughs> Would you even call yourself a Duchovnite? I would because that was my AOL screen name for many years. <laughs> and my AOL screen name was Scully and Spooky. <laughs> and it's still active. Do you know why my AOL screen name was Decovnight? Because Skulder was already taken. <laughs> it was me. <laughs> no, it wasn't me. <laughs> Again, Chris, if that was going to be revealed in this episode, that would be too much <laughs> revealing. It would be too much. I don't know what it is about David Duchovny. Okay, but I also loved Jillian Anderson. Me too. I loved them so hard. I dyed my hair for the majority of my life because of, of Jillian Anderson and her red hair and how glowing she is. I remember crying on the bus to school in eighth grade when David Duchovny got married to Taya Leone. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. I was right there with you. <laughs> um, I've like sketched both of them like in my, you know, like. Like one of your French girls? Yes, all of my French girls. Let's see. Mm. I had the I Want to Believe poster up on my wall through all of high school. So that was seeing these episodes again. I was like, oh, that takes me back to my room. <laughs> It takes me back to my room, <laughs> much like life in quarantine does. Yeah, um, I saw the movie in theaters at least twice and owned it on probably VHS at the time. But not widescreen, right? I would hope that it would be widescreen. I think I was always pro-widescreen. Okay. Just maybe it depends on what my mom bought me, because I was probably like, I want this. <laughs> um, I went to an X-Files convention when I was 16 with my mom in New York City, and I met I met Jillian oh Anderson and she signed my magazine that she was on the cover of. And I got to look her in the eye and be like, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. <laughs> I could picture her reaction. She was so sweet. I was so happy. And I had that magazine, that signed magazine on my wall through all of high school. Mm. I was Scully for Halloween. <laughs> yes. So that comes back. <laughs> my famous Halloween costumes. Becky, I have a question. Did you ever watch yeah. the X-Files? <laughs> I think I've seen about 10 episodes total. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I'm not I'm not joking. I didn't really watch the show. <laughs> oh, I I'm going to need a minute and up to several days to recover from learning this. I wasn't a really big fan. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Do Covnight? <laughs> I'm crying. <laughs> what was I, 14, 15, 16? Like, I think I exclusively only watched, like, comedy shows, like Seinfeld <laughs> and si and Simpsons and, you know, things like that. And Seinfeld. And Seinfeld. <laughs> and Simpsons. And Simpsons. That's all I watched. I wasn't into dramas. And I was going to I was gonna ask you that question, but, like, I was not into dramas for a very long time. And so I don't know what it is. I think I just had the hots for Jillian Anderson and Dave Duchovny, but I was never, like, into the show. Like, I was never a sci-fi person. I remember going to that convention and not knowing anything. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, 
like there were so many props from the shows and I was oh like, I don't God. know what any of this is. Becky, this is such a reveal. <laughs> so just to recap, I watched more X-Files <laughs> in high school than Duchovnite and Scully and Spooky. <laughs> the people whose screen names were named after the X-Files. I was the only one watching the X-Files at a certain point in time. Now, Chris, let's be fair. Becky's screen name of Duchovnite is very appropriate. It is very understandable now that her screen name is solely about the actor himself. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, it was going to be Scolder, but... <laughs> um, facts are facts, Becky. I try to think about, like, why. And I think one of the things is that there were not DVRs then. I did not have three VCRs that could easily, you know, tape everything. <laughs> you didn't have a friend like me. You didn't have a Chris. I guess I didn't. I didn't know you in high school. So on Sunday nights, I would always watch The Simpsons, and then I would watch either, it was like King of the Hill, Malcolm in the Middle, or Futurama, whatever was after The Simpsons. And then by Sunday night, I had to, like, get ready for school and like shower and like finish homework I hadn't done and things like that because I would go to bed, I don't know, like around 11 or so. I don't know. So was the X-Files theme like the MASH theme for you? No, it wasn't. It, the thing was that there was always a cold open. And if I if I happened to stay tuned to the channel after King of the Hill or whatever, and if I was into the cold open, then I would probably watch the whole episode. Okay. And if I wasn't that into it, I'd be like, well, I have other things I need to do. Okay. And it's not like I could just tape it like a DVR or something, or it wasn't streaming. Like I couldn't just watch this whenever I wanted. I was at the, I was held captive by broadcast <laughs> television. <laughs> So I think that was part of it. And it was also just like a stretch for me. Like it was a drama. I wasn't into dramas. <laughs> I didn't really care for sci-fi. So like. <laughs> so Duchovnite would be actively watching Fox on Sunday nights and then turn it <laughs> off when David Duchovny's show came on. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> she was the undo Covenant. Wow. I mean, this is more bizarre than anything <laughs> ever explored on the X-Files, which you yes, wouldn't seriously. know because you've never seen it. This is a far shadowier labyrinth <laughs> than anything they uncovered. Yeah. So watching these episodes for this podcast, nothing came back to me. <laughs> like nothing. <laughs> There's a few episodes that we weren't told to watch that I was like, okay, I kind of vaguely remember that. But out of the ones that you picked, Seth, none of them... <laughs> I remember none of them. I may never watch them. I did. I did watch the movie twice in theaters, and I owned it. And I and I would rewatch it. Well, oh, and, no, guys. And Becky, to meet you less than halfway, Gillian Anderson was one of the last women I ever had a crush on. <laughs> and part of my initial like interest in it was like, oh, this person is perhaps the most beautiful person alive. <laughs> she is. <laughs> she is. It's just objectively true. Chris, you would agree, yes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that red hair. Like, I just can't even imagine this show existing without not only just Gillian Anderson, but specifically her hair. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like uh, Scully's, Scully's hair and cigarette smoking man smoke. And like, that's the show. Like, and Guys, a flashlight. The that's it. That's the it. The <laughs> We'll get there. And also that. When when are we going to talk about me meeting David Duchovny? Well, I had a thing for David Duchovny for literal years. You don't say. Years upon years. <laughs> and then I was a gossip reporter for years. And I was just like, when am I going to meet David Duchovny? When's it going to happen? I'm here in LA. Every day is a step closer to Duchovny. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, he was nominated for Californication. I went to the Showtime Golden Globes party and he was there. 
and I was staring at him the whole party because <laughs> he was like 20 feet away from me. And it was David Duchovny. Yes. And I was just like, oh my God, he's there. I finally did it. I'm in the same room as him. And then I was just staring at him for literally hours. I was not doing my job, didn't go up to anybody in Hobnob or whatever. And then he was getting up to leave and I was like, this is it. <laughs> And I like ran up to him and tapped him and I was like, excuse me, David. And he turns and I was like, I just want to let you know, like, I'm a really big fan of yours. And uh, I wish that you won. I mean, I've never, I think I saw like two episodes of Californication, but I was like, (laughs) I wish you would have won tonight. Like, I just wanted to say something nice. And he's like, well, thank you so much. And shook my hand and it was over. And that was it. I didn't even get a photo. And it was so anticlimactic. (laughs) I think I was 26, so it was like 13 years of of loving him, mm. and it was just like fine. Did you say like I'm a really big fan? I've I've never seen any of your work, but <laughs> still, really, really big fan. I have heard of and seen you so many times. Look, I just want to bang you. <laughs> Apparently, can you IM me a Decub night? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, super super anticlimactic story. <laughs> It's okay. I feel like the best version of living in L.A. is having a lot of very anticlimactic stories of encounters with celebrities. Mm. And it's like a lot of times the best version of that is just the one where nothing objectively awful transpired. (laughs) That was it. Yeah. The X-Files is the primary creation of Chris Carter. Christopher Carl Carter was born October 13th, 1956 in Bellflower, a suburb of Los Angeles, the son of a construction worker. And Chris got a degree in journalism from California State University. He started writing articles for the magazine Surfing and worked his way up to editor of the magazine and then fell in love with screenwriter Dory Pearson, to whom he is still married. Dory encouraged Chris to write scripts himself and send them to producers. In 1985, Jeffrey Katzenberg, at the time head of Disney Studios, gave him a chance and Chris Carter spent the next years working at unimportant TV shows, which barely saw the light of day. But Silence of the Lambs came out in 1991, so Chris Carter was inspired to take up the horror genre, and also he had learned that millions of Americans in polls would consistently say they believed that they themselves had been abducted by aliens. So he also wanted to make a horror show based around alien abductions and the UFO phenomenon. He worked with Peter Roth, who had just become Fox's head of development, and X-Files was born. Chris Carter's biggest TV inspirations for X-Files were uh, the obscure horror series Kolchak the Night Stalker and also The Twilight Zone, dedicated to parapsychological phenomenon, the Watergate movie All the President's Men, and the conspiracy thriller The Parallax View. Well, that pretty much name checks everything I was going to call out as, this reminds me of that. So, good job, (laughs) Chris Carter. As much of the show as I've seen, I had seen very few interviews with Chris Carter and had sought very few of them out. And it was very interesting learning now, like how aware of these influences he was even from the very start and how intentional they were. 
So Chris Carter took an 18-page treatment for his project entitled The X-Files to a pitch meeting at Fox, and Fox initially rejected it on the first pitch, but gave it a reluctant green light for a pilot after the second time. After finding the series two starring leads in Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny, both of which he had to fight for, Chris Carter was given a budget of $2 million to produce a pilot episode. X-Files originally aired on the Fox network for nine seasons from September 10th, 1993 to May 19th, 2002. The series centers on FBI special agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully, who work on cases linked to the paranormal called X-Files. Mulder, an FBI profiler, is a believer in the paranormal, and Scully, a medical doctor, is the skeptic. And she is assigned to make scientific analyses of Mulder's discoveries and hopefully debunk and discredit his work. Throughout the series, the two develop a close friendship. It was initially aired alongside the show The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. in what was perceived to be a very unpopular time slot. But the series quickly started earning pretty ridiculous Nielsen ratings for this time slot and was given a full 24-episode order in its first season. And its popularity and critical acclaim built up over the course of its second and third seasons and saw it earning Golden Globe Awards for Best TV Series Drama in 1995, 1997, 1998, and 1999. The X-Files went on to win a total of eight Golden Globes, 16 Emmys, and another metric shit ton of BAFTAs and SAG (laughs) Awards, etc. that we don't have time to name. Interestingly, X-Files also won a Peabody Award, which is dedicated to not necessarily like scientifically themed shows, but like shows that try to go after the truth and like pursue inquiry, like inquiry about humanity, like that kind of basic vague humanitarian bullshit. (laughs) After Carter's initial three-year signing for Fox had ended, the success of the series allowed him to renegotiate a five-year contract with additional perks, including a feature film adaptation. The show was filmed for seasons one through five in British Columbia, up in Canada, as we have mentioned, and then for the remaining seasons in Los Angeles. And it was a huge ratings hit for six seasons. Season seven and eight saw the ratings begin to decline and saw David Duchovny, who was Fox Mulder, leave the show, returning only for a few episodes. They brought on later Robert Patrick, Team 1000 from Terminator 2, and Annabeth Gish, from Mystic Pizza fame, I guess we would call it, (laughs) as FBI agents John Doggett and Monica Reyes to roughly try to match Mulder's personality traits. That was seen as a huge betrayal by the fans, but people, myself included among people, still stuck around as long as we could. Mulder appears in about half the season eight episodes and only at the very start and end of season nine, which was the end of the show's initial run in 2002. There were two feature films based on the television series. The first one that I mentioned earlier in summer 1998, and a post-series film, I want to believe, that was released in 2008. And then after that, even, there was a revived, abbreviated 10th season comprising six episodes in 2016, and then an 11th season with 10 episodes that was considerably better in 2018. So, all in all, 218 episodes of The X-Files have aired, including the 11th season. And that is a pretty remarkably long run and many iterations for a show that was begun in this way. Also, let's mention that weren't there like 24 episodes a season back then? Like 23 or 24 or something? Yeah, and that's a great thing to bring up before we get to any particular episodes, because the structure of broadcast primetime television at this time, especially for dramas 
was one-hour episodes, you know, which are about 45 minutes without commercials. And at the time, you would have usually closer to 23 or 24 episodes per season, which is considerably longer than we're used to in the prestige TV era now. Maybe Jane the Virgin is an hour and still has like 20-something episodes a season, but almost everything else is like 10, 12 yeah, exactly. It's just such a completely different, just even just in terms of the amount of time per season. It's very apparent to me that when you have 23 or 24 episode seasons, they're not all going to be hits. Again, just because there is so much time that you have to fill in any season that's that long. Yeah, Seth, I was going to ask you like both how often you've revisited like these early seasons that we're mostly going to talk about. And, like, did you keep up with every single thing that The X-Files did? Because I'll say, like, I after that, I, I guess I saw the second movie, but I, I didn't, I have not revisited The X-Files or, you know, like, watch any of these new seasons. The X-Files has become, over time, a comfort food kind of show for me. It's the kind of thing that I'll put on in the background and endlessly revisit now whether or not I'm positively paying attention all the time. I'll freely admit to cherry-picking always, <laughs> always, whether with X-Files or any show that I like to rewatch, even if I'm watching my favorite season. There are tons of episodes of this show that I feel free to always miss because there were just so many slots that they had to fill in each season. So even when it's overall like one of their best seasons, even when the show was firing on all cylinders, even when they had their best writer's rooms, there is still a ton of filler, in my opinion. Yeah, I think one of the things that happens with shows in this era is that, like, as much of a vision as the creator has, unless they're doing, like, a ton of cocaine like Aaron Sorkin, they just don't have the time to, like, oversee <laughs> absolutely everything. So you get episodes by new writers that maybe don't get workshopped as much as they would have if they had, you know, much more time. So you definitely get, like, weak episodes or episodes that just don't quite feel like the same show sometimes. Um, I, I'm speaking mostly of experience through Buffy, but comparisons to Buffy are, are frequent with, with the show. And for me, like that was how I, I framed it. Like, I think they're inevitable. Yeah. Those comparisons are inevitable. Like, it's really interesting that, like, I've been so historically anti-Buffy, uh, even as registered on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Because they are very comparable as shows in a lot of ways. I don't know. I feel like they did kind of follow a similar trajectory in some ways. Mm-hmm. So you did kind of like stick through like season 10 and 11 and everything? I did watch seasons 10 and 11 all the way through, like basically as they aired. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my friends, like including the folks who I would have those X-Files nights with, dropped off at one point or another. And honestly, I kind of dropped off. Like, I still haven't seen the second X-Files movie, uh, the one called I Want to Believe. I still haven't watched it, and I feel very justified in not having watched it. Yeah. Based on Is it everything. supposed to be bad? Is it supposed to be okay? It's supposed to be awful. I've seen it and I don't remember it super well, but it just, it feels really weird because it's more of a monster of the week episode, but as a movie. So it's just like, it's not really furthering the X-Files story that much. So it's just, it feels really random. It just kind of feels like a monster movie that happens to have Skulder and Mully in it or <laughs> uh, Mulder <laughs> and Scully. Sorry. You know, what did whatever. you say? I guess Skulder I and Mully. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to come up with a new screen name. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken. 
I will admit that mine was slay me, please. <laughs> so we are all pretty on brand. <laughs> Two FBI agents assigned to the same cases for different reasons. One a skeptic, one a believer. Bowler? Both trying to answer questions that were never meant to be uncovered. You've seen things that weren't to be seen. The X-Files, Friday on Fox. Don't watch it alone. So I curated for my podcast co-hosts a list of episodes to try to kind of cover most of the bases of X-Files. You call it a list. I I think it was more of a scroll. (laughs) (laughs) A litany, if you will. Um, A barrage. a tirade of episodes. But I think that, and interestingly, like, again, doing the research for this episode, I learned that the creators of this show and even the stars, like even David Duchovny, who had a very active role in writing and in creating story elements, like, they were all very aware that X-Files was a very broad frame. Even though it's a very, like, particular pitch for a show, you know, a couple of FBI agents investigating these cases no one else wants to investigate. That framing made for a show structure and a kind of atmosphere that could be very, very different depending on which episode it was. So I say that to say that it was hard for me to narrow down a short list of episodes to try to reflect the show because not only are there kind of two different universes for X-Files episodes, you've got on one side the mythology episodes, which, you know, the whole show is serialized, but there is a kind of substructure and a story thread that runs throughout the entire series that is about extraterrestrials and aliens, you know, taking over the Earth and the conspiracy between those aliens and the government in America and all around the world working together to try to, like, make that colonization happen. And also, like, about a million other things that we could go into and probably shouldn't. And then on the other side of the mythology, there is the monster of the week, which is each week there was kind of a different creature or supernatural phenomenon happening to, you know, afflicting humans or a different like serial killer, something like that. And Mulder and Scully would investigate those. And those episodes would have nothing to do with the overarching conspiracies or with shadowy government cabals or with people's OVA being taken from the them, none of that. So there are those kind of two kinds of X-Files episode overall. The Ovum taking and the Monster of the Week, yes. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) But like there are also like a a lot of different types of episode in terms of episodes that are straight up dramatic, melodramatic, one would almost say. And then episodes that are very deliberately comedy and completely comedy focused. So I was curious about any reactions that Becky or Chris had to the kind of huge group of episodes, but also the kind of different kinds of show that The X-Files was? Well, I feel like no matter what I say, there are going to be some X-Files mega fans out there that are just going to be pissed off because we didn't watch 
a huge percentage of how many episodes there are. And I think that what did, what did we watch? Like 10 episodes, something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many. What did you say? There are over like 200 that what I got out of this experience rewatching these, like maybe my opinion would have changed if I had just watched more either way, like good or bad. But I'll start with Scully and Mulder, Jillian and David. Their beauty is so distracting. <laughs> <laughs> and I they are so pretty and so beautiful I'm reading my notes verbatim is it, is it in a, the form of a haiku I, it's in the form of a heart yeah it's it's Mrs. Mrs. Dana Scully and Mrs. Fox Mulder <laughs> Mrs. Becky Mulder you're in a polyamorous relationship yes with, with both, both of, them. of them okay I think that the actors are perfect in their roles. I love that no matter what episode I watch, like I bought their friendship and I bought their partnership as partners in the FBI. I just felt like they're both very natural. I didn't feel like they were acting like I... I just, I loved watching them. And honestly, they were my favorite part of every episode. Like there are lots of scenes without them in it because something has to happen and then they go investigate. And I like perked up when they came on screen, mostly so I could stare at them. <laughs> they're so beautiful. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not really into this show. <laughs> Still, wow. I, I was really looking forward to this episode, too, of, of this podcast, thinking that there might have been something there that I just didn't realize when I was younger and I was going to discover it this time. But it's just not my thing. I started so many of these episodes and... And I think like most of them, I was like intrigued at the start. And by the end, I just didn't care. Like I lost interest. I'm just not into the show. And I, I don't think it's necessarily bad. It's just something that is not something that interests me. I just don't really care about sci-fi. Um, I think that the show is mostly their work. And I think that I'm more interested in people's personal lives <laughs> as far as characters. And there's not a lot of their personal lives in, in at least the episodes I watch for this. Maybe I'm missing out on something. Um, but yeah, I just, I just, I found a lot of it really forgettable. And I, and I, there were moments and I'm sure we'll talk about them that I did like and some certain things, but on the whole, like, I'm not that too interested to keep watching. The truth is not out there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, not to be defensive, but... Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like part of the inadequacy of making even a list of like nine or ten episodes is that it's hard to give you a comprehensive idea of how much Mulder and Scully's personal lives are their work. They have no lives outside of their careers. Yeah, and I get that, but I want to know about people's families and their relationships and, and how that goes into their work and and the show as far as i know isn't really like that at all so that's I mean, why that was just... that was part of some of these episodes i i want to agree with you in the sense that this is very much a procedural show yes and i'm not i'm not into that personally yeah like it's it's interesting because like obviously the x-files has been one of the most influential drama series especially i think in the last 20 or 30 years but i don't necessarily co-sign every way in which it's been influential <laughs> i think procedural dramas are kind of overrepresented now and i think the x-files is at least somewhat responsible and becky like i agree with you to a large extent when any kind of series about any kind of characters deliberately kind of 
cuts off or only shows one part of people's lives, then it's going to limit what those characters can be. It's going to limit, you know, what kind of stories you end up telling. And maybe that's just a part of like X-Files being a primetime drama on a broadcast network. But yeah, it's it's interesting because like in, in retrospect, I'm not as precious or defensive necessarily about X-Files as I used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, what did you think? Well, on that note, yeah, I mean, I wanted to just reiterate, like, one of the reasons I thought it was so funny that I had actually watched The X-Files before Seth was that that was probably the first thing I knew about him. Because, I mean, this was, you know, I met Seth, like, in the early 2000s, when one of the first things you would see about someone was their screen name. Um, And so I think, like, (laughs) you have always been so defined as an X-Files fan to me. And, you know, I can definitely see a lot of um, distrust in the government as part of your personality. (laughs) Who among us? Who among us? Yeah. (laughs) You know, this this show just feels like a very Seth show, which I love. And and we can talk about that more. But um, yeah, I mean, as Seth was saying, this is one of the shows that was heralded for being very groundbreaking. It reintroduced like sci-fi to primetime network television. It definitely paved the way for Buffy in a way. Um, So I I have to, you know, appreciate it for that. Buffy was often described as X-Files meets 90210 or something like that. (laughs) And, you know, you can definitely see that this is a show where, you know, they're starting to break away from the mold of what had become like pretty cliche on TV. And like they're being very experimental and kind of bending genres. And so and that's a lot of the stuff that you know, I loved about Buffy too. And I kind of can't stop comparing it to that in so many ways, because Buffy also had mythology episodes and Monster of the Week episodes. And Seth's angst over trying to choose episodes is exactly what I went through. <laughs> when we did our Buffy episode, Seth, I, I can sympathize with it because there's just no way to do it, you know, choosing even five or 10 episodes. No, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that and like to understand our shared experience in that way, because it like felt almost in insulting to my own appreciation for the storylines that they like take literally seasons to tease out and to like plant and pay off over time. Yeah, there was no way to kind of make a list of episodes that wasn't very reductive, like very, very reductive. Because like, it's one thing for me to tell Becky, well, you know, like they do this over several episodes, but it would be another thing to like actually watch all of those episodes and see the ways that these characters truly like take a very long time both to set up the the story points over the course of the season that get hit because i wrote out like literally like paragraphs of story and i'm like there's no way i'm gonna impose upon my co-hosts to just read out all of this plot that happens in the episodes that we don't talk about (laughs) yeah Hmm. But there was just, like, so much in the universe of the story of the show and so much in the actual personal lives of Mulder and Scully that I wasn't able to get across in just nine or ten episodes of the show. Chris, what'd you think? I I think you did a good (laughs) job of picking episodes because I, you know, I did my own, like, research to see, like, what, you know, various fans thought were the best episodes and, you know, the creators thought were the best episodes and a lot of these, you know, crossover with that. Nothing, you know, again, Against your your choice. It's just, it's a difficult task that I completely understand from my own experience. That being said, I felt a lot like Becky, unfortunately, is just that I kind of came away feeling like the reputation of this show was almost too generous for what it 
actually kind of is when you watch it now, which is very much like a procedural. I wrote that down too. It's kind of just like Law and Order with a werewolf instead of a pissed off babysitter. (laughs) (laughs) So like, I I thought the show was okay. Like Becky, I enjoyed certain moments and I appreciated stylistic choices that they made. You know, we're going to talk about some episodes that were very, you know, stylistically daring for what was allowed on television, or I guess what was like networks would, you know, approve to be on television at the time. But yeah, I, I think I have to put myself down as a, a skeptic <laughs> and I'm, I kind of, I want to hear more wow. uh, from the uh, believer uh, as we go through these episodes and, um, you know, just kind of see you know, if you can, if you can convince me that the truth is out there or, you know, am I just going to be a cynical bitch by the end of the episode? <laughs> Before we get into specific episodes, can we just talk about the opening credits? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I really want to talk about the opening credits and the X-Files theme song itself. This is where we play the dance remix one that's on the Pure Mood soundtrack. Yeah, exactly. As we as we mentioned on the on episode 13 of our podcast about Pure Moods, the X-Files theme song is as iconic or more iconic even than the show itself, and it became an international pop music hit in its techno remix. <laughs> The X-Files theme was composed by Mark Snow, the composer of the whole series. He's a very electronics-oriented composer using digital strings, synthesizers, and keyboards in a way that was pretty elevated for TV drama at the time. While creating the X-Files theme itself, Mark Snow had the whistling part already, and he was stuck finding the melody for the song until he bashed his keyboard in frustration, making the echoing crash sound (laughs) that reverberates as the central element of the theme. Also, Mark Snow had a different set of melodies that echoed as recurring themes throughout multiple episodes and even across multiple different seasons of the show. And he'd have a different musical approach for the mythology episodes than he would for the Monster of the Week episodes. So that to me is a big part of the craft and the care that went into making this series. I think the theme song is fantastic. Like it just totally gets the mood and just that whole like truth is out there vibe. Like it just feels very spacey and a little like silly, but like in a fun way. But the actual like opening credits, like the visuals are terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just say it. It's bad. (laughs) It's so bad. And I even remember thinking that like back in the 90s, like it's not just looking back at it now and thinking like that it looks cheesy, like. Even in the 90s, it kind of looked like I could get on Prodigy and somehow (laughs) get something better. Because it's just, it's these weird, like, almost like clip art kind of looking (laughs) graphics. They're very clip art. 
it's not even that there's just like weird images that are like non sequiturs, but there's like phrases like paranormal activity. <laughs> the government, what is it? The government denies knowledge. The truth is out yeah. there. Like it's so like I I almost really want the show to have a reboot so they could redo the opening credits and make a really good opening credits. There should be a really good opening credits for this show. <laughs> I was surprised they didn't update them. I know they did at some point, like in the very later seasons, but like, f- like while the show was like still very popular, like it was always like that. Much later than you and would imagine. Worst, like the one, the guy that like has like, the his guy. face is jiggling. <laughs> like I don't even know what to say. Chris, like literally the minute y'all started on this, the image of the blue guy who's like torn in multiple directions at once. Yes. Yeah. Immediately what came to mind. And yeah, I learned when researching for this episode that Chris Carter came up with some parts of the title sequence as part of his pitch to Fox. But also later on, once they were like fleshing everything out to actually make an opening credit sequence, he supervised and was the one who was like, use this photo, use this photo, use this newspaper headline or whatever, use this random clip art of a man (laughs) and run it through whatever like VHS video effects you have. (laughs) It was and is hilariously bad. Like the opening credits are so silly in like 1990. (laughs) They're like 1990 unsolved mysteries. (laughs) They feel like the pitch deck like that you would put together like this isn't really the episode but like we're going to show you like what the kind of feel of it is. This is our mood board (laughs) for the (laughs) X-Files. Mood board. <laughs> it's literally, it's like Chris Carter's mood board. And like the best part was learning like in the run up to this episode that it literally was like Chris Carter's mood board and that that just became the opening credits. And that's just what happened. And he just got those clip art stock image videos of men's faces pulling apart. And that was the X-Files opening somehow. Yeah, it does feel like you stumbled upon a bad like Pinterest page or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> And they have like the like freeze frame of like Mulder and Scully where it just like it's like a scene from the show, but it just keeps like cutting and it just it just looks really <laughs> weird. It's yeah. like just use the footage. It's weird. It's weird. For the longest time, that intro was iconic. I mean, the theme song is still very no, iconic. The, the intro is very iconic because it's so unique, it, but not good. <laughs> <laughs> just because it's iconic doesn't mean it's good. I think that is an important lesson. Becky, (laughs) just because it's iconic doesn't mean it's good. Yeah. So another formal theme uh, and a really big influence that I wanted to touch on uh, outside of any particular episodes is darkness. This show was shot darker than basically any TV show at the time and darker than most shows today. But really, like, on a technical level, X-Files was a groundbreaking show because so much of the mystery and look of the show was based around, like, complete darkness and around scenes that aren't even necessarily lit by anything but flashlights. Again, it's like, at the time, they're doing it because it looks cool, but, like, in retrospect, that's been incredibly um, influential on basically all of television, not just TV drama. I can confirm that the show is very dark because I had to watch the show (laughs) while my baby napped and the light was coming through the windows and I could barely see anything. (laughs) 
Yeah, I also think it's a financial decision because you can tell, especially the first season or two, is done on the cheap in many ways. <laughs> and I think that that disguises some of the uh, questionable effects. The darker it is, the the less you can see like the seams of the costume of the monster or whatever. That's my theory. <laughs> Debunk it if you must. No, I, I, I think that actually totally makes sense. Yeah. Did you guys watch the pilot for this episode? I did. I did. I ended up rewatching the pilot yesterday. Um, I hadn't initially included the pilot in the list of episodes that I suggested for the podcast, um, but I did end up rewatching it, and it, I felt like it was a good thing to like revisit for this. Sorry, nobody down here, but the FBI's most unwanted. Major Mulder, I'm Dana Scully. I've been assigned to work with you. Oh, isn't it nice to be suddenly so highly regarded? So who did you take off to get stuck with this detail, Scully? Actually, I'm looking forward to working with you. I've heard a lot about you. Oh, really? I was under the impression that you were sent to spy on me. If you have any doubt about my qualifications or credentials... You're a medical doctor. You teach at the academy. Did your undergraduate degree in physics. Einstein's twin paradox, a new interpretation. Dana Scully's senior thesis. Now that's a credential, rewriting Einstein. Did you bother to read it? I did. I liked it. It's just that in most of my work, laws of physics rarely seem to apply. Yeah, I definitely never saw, I never saw the pilot. So I did want to, you know, have like a grounding of like, this is how they came together. I thought it was an interesting episode, but I also was just struck so much by how Dana Scully totally feels like Clarice Starling. And it feels 100% inspired by Silence of the Lambs success. So it's no uh, surprise to me, Seth, that you said that he was inspired by Silence of the Lambs because it really felt like, okay, let's just put Clarice Starling in in a TV show. Yeah, I also picked up on that before having read it because I, I did eventually kind of read about some of the influences, but that was one of my first notes. As I watched one of the next episodes we talked about first, but I felt kind of confused, even though like I know the baseline of the show, but I still needed to go back to the pilot and be like, wait, exactly how did they get assigned together? Because it's I think after this pilot, like they don't go back to that too often. I mean, maybe they do in some episodes, but it feels like after this, it's just kind of a given that they are who they are. And so, yeah, I mean, it was important to go back. I mean, I was mostly struck by Scully's tan pants and gray blazer, which was not a good look. Uh, No, you don't like that? (laughs) There were many less successful looks in the first few seasons of this show. She's still gorgeous. She's still gorgeous, even with shoulder pads. She's gorgeous, but her hair is not the cut that like became iconic. And it's not quite the same shade of red either. It got progressively True. redder. It did. So <laughs> I was disappointed in early Scully. Hashtag not his Scully. <laughs> no, I'm very particular about my ladies, oddly enough. <laughs> oh, we know, Chris. Um, and as many like literal thousands of hours of X-Files as I've watched, I've never read before about the influences for Scully's character. 
And at this point, even Gillian Anderson is really upfront that a lot of her inspiration for how she played the character of Scully, at first at least, was Jodie Foster's performance as Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. It comes through. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's no doubt at all. Um, And really, during season one, and especially afterward, the character and her performance, you know, really took off in their own kind of organic directions from there. But really, at the start, you can see the Silence of the Lambs influence easily. I kind of want to give it credit for something, and I also am a little disappointed by this, so bear with me for a second. Silence of the Lambs is so much about gender and how Clarice is kind of perceived by the men in the movie, you know, both the like serial killers and then also her peers. And the X-Files, I think it's really good that in a way they don't, because I can see a bad version of that where it's like, she's the woman coming in and everyone's like, oh, you can't do this. And I don't want any of that. But I also, in a way, maybe did want a little bit more of that kind of high level thinking. You know, it just she's kind of in there and then it's it's kind of a non-issue, you know, like her gender and her role in the in the episode. And as far as I know, it doesn't come up very much. Uh, I kind of disagree. I don't think you need to essentialize and reduce a woman character into having her gender be like the base of all of her thinking. But really also in terms of the inspiration for the show and Chris Carter's intentions, Chris Carter really uh, intended to flip what he saw as the dynamic that kind of dominated TV drama at the time, you know, where the female lead character would be emotional and irrational and impulsive, and the male lead of the show would be the rational and logical one. So in creating Mulder and Scully and in the pilot, he intentionally made Mulder the irrational and emotionally driven character, and he made Scully the skeptic and the person who insists on scientific investigation and any evidence before she changes her mind. In retrospect, of course, I don't feel like the pilot is anywhere near the best episode, uh, and it's nowhere near close to my favorite, but I do think that it established Mulder and Scully's rapport very well, and how much they push each other to live up to their own stated ideals. Yeah, I want to say that, like, I think it, like, I like that Chris Carter did that, you know, just to be clear that, like, I think that instinct was way better than the opposite. I guess, like, but there is a part of me that wishes that it had, you know, kind of the insight that Silence of the Lambs does into, like, psychology and, and people. And that's just kind of not what the show is. So I guess that's that was the point I was trying to make. And this is Seth, cutting back in here to wrap up this first part of our examination of the X-Files. We'll pick this back up in a few days with the second installment, where we'll discuss what I see are the most important episodes and moments of the series, all of this fan's favorites at least, and we'll briefly discuss the cultural impact of the X-Files and its online fan community. For now, the When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your fine podcast product. And you can reach out to us on any of the major social medias, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, by searching for When We Were Young. You can also contribute on Patreon.com at Patreon.com slash When We Were Young to enable us to continue making episodes of this show. I'm Seth Pearson, and until next time, the truth is out there, but so are lies.